It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hello, and welcome to Jackalope Carnival, a podcast where we look at human beliefs through myth, history, the paranormal, and the downright odd. I'm Becca. And I'm Eric. And we'll be your host through this sideshow of stories. Uh, I also want to congratulate you for finding us. We've noticed a bit of growth in listenership lately. And because as of now, we do no advertising, although the future might change that. And I at least do pretty much zero word of mouth sharing. We're in the secret speakeasy category of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) I... Don't know about the rest of the country, but the past several years here in Raleigh, speakeasy themed bars were all the rage and they're pretty fun. Eric, do you have you had that going on? And there is kind of there was here in Baltimore a speakeasy, Mm -hmm. it's still around, it's just become less under the radar. Where it was a speakeasy in that it was a bar, it was official, it was licensed, but it didn't have any signage on the outside. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah, you had to know a guy to like know that, that that was the cool bar. Well, and one day maybe we'll do a prohibition or a bootlegging podcast. I think that would be pretty fun, Um, which, by the way, my state was actually the first in U.S. prohibition in 1908 Hmm. and one of the last to make it legal when the 21st Amendment repealed prohibition in 1933. So North Carolina has a long history of bootlegging because of this and a lot of interesting stories. It's quite our history, but we'll save that for another episode. But if we are in a speakeasy, we're going to have to have a password. So, Eric, a password, we got to get huh? this episode started. How about Someone's got to Vander Decken. Vander Decken. <laughs> I thought it was the Lord's werewolves, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that, why not? Um, that's, what, that's what I told everybody. We're going to have mashup. to give them a pass this time, though. <laughs> Vander Decken does make more sense um, because today's podcast, we have nautical ghost stories on tap for you. So that's what we'll be serving up. Vander Decken. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to be talking about ghost ships, which is a term that has a couple of different usages in the English language. Yeah. And we're doing ghosts again, which we've done a few times before, but hopefully we'll do do them many more times. Yeah, because it is such a pervasive belief. It's a seductive belief and humans have had it for a very long time. People feel really strongly about this. But if you've listened before, you know, I'm on the side of ghost agnostic, but I do want to believe uh, to quote (laughs) our friend. To quote the poster. Yeah. Yeah. With the poster. I want to believe, but because apparitions and ghosts, they're a glimpse at something beyond the everyday realm, beyond the profane. And I like that idea. And it lets us get excited about history. It lets us sort of, the idea lets us experience a whisper of it. It's a glimpse through time and space. And while ghost ships do most definitely involve specters, sometimes they don't, but they do involve mystery. So that's pretty seductive as well. Eric, you were mentioning that term before. Do you want to give us a definition? There of what's are three. Count three. Three <laughs> different interpretations of the word ghost ship or the phrase ghost ship. And the first is my favorite. And that's where the ship itself is a ghost. So the 
ship may also contain ghosts, but the ship itself is a ghost. The ghost was the ship all along. Indeed. Oh, that's the, um, there's a Poe story. And that's kind of the, you know, sorry, spoiler. I mean, spoiler alert. If you go to read the now, you know, 100-year-old story, uh, yeah, the ship is a ghost. And he probably was riffing on the whole version of the ghost ship story that I'm going to talk about first. So the yeah, first you're... is the ship is the ghost. That's like the quintessential ghost ship and yeah. the quintessential. Okay. The second is that the ship contains ghosts, that there is a physical ship, but aboard the ship, there are ghostly passengers. Got it. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to quote Samuel Jackson. Yeah, I was because I have been. He's saying that just so y'all know, like all day I've been going around going, there's too many ghosts on this ship. Anyway, I was doing a snakes on the plane. It was bad. I was going to spare you all. Maybe maybe Eric will be kind and edit this out. I'm not. He probably won't. Staying right on there. So that's the second one is that the ship has ghosts. And my second story involves that one. And then there's a third one that you were just talking about. Yes. So the one where I said it involves mystery, there are ships that don't have a crew. So they're physical ships with no crew, and those are also ghost ships. And those happen every year, right? Like they, the Coast Guard rolls up and there's a ship and there's nobody on it. They happen. Um, yeah, I have to ask my nephew, who used to be Coast Guard, so I'll have to ask him about that. But we had an expert all along, and I didn't think... So we have these stories. We have examples from each one for you all today, and we'll tell you a little bit about ghost ships. The first one we're going to do is kind of the quintessential ghost ship, right? It's probably the the granddaddy of many, or grandmama, of many a ship ghost story, and that is the Flying Dutchman. It has become such a part of culture, right, that this particular story has inspired or was written directly by Authors as famous as Edgar Allan Poe and Sir Walter Scott and even Washington Irving and even inspired composer Richard Wagner. So this is a really famous story. The Flying Dutchman, or I'm going to attempt Dutch here. So Hey, 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 hey. You, you left off SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> oh, well, how could I mention Edgar Allan Poe and Sir Walter Scott and leave out SpongeBob SquarePants? That's a very good point. Uh, and of course, where did he work? He worked at Frying Dutchman. Yeah, the Frying Dutchman. That's right. So we get we get an impact in all kinds of media and all kinds of creative projects here. Can I try Dutch now? Because I want to get this over with. Yeah. I speak yeah. very little Dutch. I didn't know you had any. I'm trying to think. Um well there was <laughs> there was a, a uh, there used to be a bar here in Baltimore that just served Dutch beer. So I did learn a couple of words, but they're gone now. So, All right, so, so bar, just, just let's just pull the Band-Aid off. <laughs> say, <laughs> say the name in Dutch. All right, here I'm going to get a try. Ready? Vliegende Hollander, which means the Flying Dutchman. That's the name of the ship, or at least in its, its own native tongue, if it were a real ship. The earliest written accounts only go back to 1790. Uh, an author by the name of John MacDonald talks about... It's one of the perennial yarns that people, sailors get together and they tell stories of the Flying Dutchman. And inevitably, one of the per persons telling stories admits they have seen the Flying Dutchman. And he doesn't seem to put a lot of stock in the stories, but he mentions the story's existence and he uses the ship's name in writing. And that's the first time in writing that we have it. So 1790. Some people think that the stories might go back a little further into the 1600s. 
during the, I guess what sometimes is called a golden age of Dutch international trade. And this is during a time. Can you say that in Dutch? No. (laughs) I mean, I could could try to great comic effect, but no, no, I I really can't. Um, (laughs) I think it was Dirk Kleiner Dweevil was the name of the bar. So it was like the little devil. Anyway, there, there, there's, is that Dutch or is that German? I don't know. I had a Dutch pen pal for a long time and she said, you'll just laugh at some of our words. <laughs> That's awesome. I would love to the, visit the Netherlands. All right. So anyway, okay. the ship. Getting back to the ship. Right. So it's, it's thought that maybe the stories go back a little further. And if there really was a flying Dutchman and there's no actual physical record of a ship by that name ever actually existing. Although let's be honest, records from the 1600s aren't the most complete in the world. Nevertheless, we're talking about a major economic endeavor and things were recorded that were that costly. Did you know that during this time in history that a single ship's cargo of spice could make a man wealthy for the rest of his life? Regular black pepper being bought from what today's Indonesia at the time was thought of as the Dutch East Indies could fetch a price that would make a man very wealthy or a woman. And if you had a shipment full of nutmeg or cloves, you were going to be set for life. There was no need to work ever again. So we're talking about a time when a lot of money was flowing, a lot of goods were flowing. So we do have pretty good records, but at the same time, it's still the 1600s. Was there an actual physical Flying Dutchman? And the answer to that is we have no idea. We really don't know. We do know by 1790, though, a bunch of sailors were talking about it. Sir Walter Scott gets involved. He hears the stories and he decides that he's going to write his own version of the tale. And he tells kind of an origin story. And in Sir Walter Scott's version of the story, he says that the captain was an unscrupulous man. He was greedy. He cared more about his own pay than about the lives of his crew. And he was pushing forward in a really terrible storm around the Cape of Good Hope. And what he wanted to do was get home and just enjoy his new wealth that he was getting from this shipment of spices or gold or jewels. He wanted to roll in the nutmeg. He did. He wanted to roll in the gold and the nutmeg. And so he's pushing the ship like around Africa and he says some kind of curse, something to the effect of... No matter what, even if I have to keep pushing till the end of time or until doomsday or against the devil himself, I will get this ship back to my own. And that ends up being to be a very ominous oath to swear. And there's also some murder involved because his ship's trying to mutiny. So, you know, the crew's mutinying so they can try to get the ship back to port and save their own lives. And he shoots some people and he doesn't care. And it's, you know, it's it's got horror. It's got... It's got murder. It's got men driven by greed. It's got a ghost ship that never makes it home. It's got nutmeg. <laughs> and it's got cloves. Yeah, nutmeg's hallucinogenic, is it not, in large properties, I believe. I've never and tried. So, my understanding, No, I've not tried it, but this my is my understanding. It's a, it's a deliriant that if you take enough of it, it's not so much that it'll make you see like happy trails or anything. It might make you see a ship that's not there. <laughs> no, my understanding is if you try to eat enough nutmeg to, that causes um, something going on in your head, that it'll make you very, very sick. And so it's more like those fever dreams you get when you have like 102 fever. 
which could be a ghost ship. Why not? Ghost ship (laughs) devil crew. Yeah, I'm just saying. (laughs) John McDonald has an origin story of sorts in his 1790 account, too. In that one, he says that the captain wasn't necessarily greedy or bad. He was just trying to get into the local harbor during a storm, but it was storming so bad that the harbor's pilot wasn't willing to go out, guide him in. So the guy's like, yeah, you know, wing it. And he never quite makes it home. So in the original stories, you know, someone dies and now they haunt this place. They didn't necessarily do anything wrong. But in Sir Walter Scott's account, it's more like a curse, right? Yeah, I mean, that's sexier. Let's face it. Like this evil curry. You want to read that more than like this poor, unfortunate guy. Oh, that's exactly where my explanation is going. Yeah, you already you are anticipating where I'm going with this. No, it's good. It's good. The next account would be in 1821, and although I can't track down an author, it's published in Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, and it's called Vanderdecken's Message Home. And I read this one actually word for word from beginning to end because it's a really fun story. And in this story, it's told from the point of view of some sailors in the 1820s. It's told as if it were like contemporary account to the magazine when it's being published. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping, but I mean, if I can imagine what sailors from the 1820s sounds like, there's a lot of swearing involved. Oh, especially after this. So they see the spectral ship, you know, uh, it's, oh darn. And they kind of know what they're getting into at this point, right? There's been hundreds of years of Flying Dutchman stories by this point. And the ship pulls up and the crew's probably swearing and they're certainly upset and scared. And the spectral voice from the ship goes, uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't expect the strip was going to talk. Oh, sorry. it does. It, it, well, it, this, the ghostly crew speaks from the ship. Although I like your version of the story better because I just imagine the ship having like a little cartoon mouth. But I don't know if that's true. It might be my invention. The voice comes from the ship and it says, I got some letters. Can you take them home for me? Right. Like basically we're lonely sailors. We have some loved ones that we would love to write. Can you please take them home? And the crew of the ship that is scared out of their wits witnessing this is trying its best to be a little coy about this. No, I don't think we can do that. Uh, Please. And my favorite line from it is, we heard that with your mail comes a deadly weight. Which is a nice 1800s way of saying. Yeah, that's going to sink if we take your mail. Which then, of course, really asks the question, who's writing the story? But anyway... It didn't turn out well. You can read that story, too. Uh, it's all over any place old stories are told. Mm. <laughs> so Vanderdecken is actually the name or of, of the captain of the Flying Dutchman, or at least that's the name that's affixed to him by the 19th century. Here's the thing. I don't think that the Flying Dutchman seems to have any accounts of it existing outside the minds of a group of a very specific literary movement. Anybody who knows something about literature history knows that the time between the late 1700s and the 1800s is known as the Romantic Movement. From what I can tell, nobody in any of the stories I've been reading about the Flying Dutchman tried to make it sound real, except for John MacDonald in 1790, kind of talking about the tales told by sailors. And there's really not much story there. It's really just sort of like, oh, I saw a ship. Right. And it was, you know, flying. But that's not really a narrative. That's more like a anecdote. We don't start getting the stories with characters and with real clear narrative and uh, ghostly warnings and oaths to the devil and all kinds of craziness. You don't start getting that until 
after 1800. And that's when the Romantic movement is in full swing. And do you remember the list of names that we used at the beginning of the show? Edgar Allan Poe, Wagner, yes. Sir Walter Scott, Washington Irving. These are all men that are writing firmly from the Romantic tradition. And anybody who remembers Romantic literature, maybe from school or maybe from your own um, enjoying it in the past, or maybe you're not familiar with it, but you might because it's really fun. If you like Jack Lip Carnival, you'll probably like Romantic literature because it's full of drama and ghosts and spells and warnings and curses curses and all that. So it fits really easily into this cultural context, right? That if you understand that the Flying Dutchman is sort of like a archetype or a trope that just seems to pop up in romantic literature, it makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense. So I'm not seeing a lo- anything that has convinced me yet that anybody's given a true account of the Flying Dutchman. But on the other hand... If the stories are true and you did see the Flying Dutchman, you might not make it home to tell the tale. Oh, dear. Spooky. Spooky. Very, very spooky. Mm-hmm. Well, my ghost ship, it was as solid as the Rock of Gibraltar, just with less monkeys. Um, <laughs> it was called the Carol A. Deering, and it was spotted by from the Coast Guard Station on Cape Hatteras, N.C., about 102 years ago actually exactly 102 years ago this month. Among the many things that make my home state of North Carolina a great place to be, a fascinating place for history, is our beautiful landscape. So we have beautiful mountains and breathtaking coastlines and beaches. Eric, you have come to our Outer Banks many Mm -hmm. a time. They're my favorite beaches Um, on the East Coast. So, but our lovely coastline is also deadly. So, you know, many beautiful things are deadly. So is our coastline. There are said to be 5,000 shipwrecks in the past 400 years off the coast of North Carolina. And 2,000 of those are off the coast of the Outer Banks alone. Wow. And so um, the many shoals off the Outer Banks and shoals are like, underwater sand dunes and like sand dunes they can change so wind weather affects them it makes it pretty treacherous for sailing conditions unsuspecting sailors but also weather patterns so we also get hurricanes right on our doorstep here and so when you put this all together you understand why the waters off Hatteras and Ocracoke Islands are known as the graveyard of the Atlantic and as I meant Sorry. There's a museum. Wasn't here. there an inlet that just appeared after a hurricane? Yeah, one it's year? gone though. It went then there was another hurricane and it went away. I didn't even have a chance to How go about see that? it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so our coastlines changed quite a bit. As I've mentioned, you know, thousands of ships and sailors lost their lives there, so it is very aptly named. And while the ship that I'm talking about may be buried there, the crew isn't. Because when the Coast Guard was finally able to board the ship days after it was sighted, the crew wasn't there. The Carol A. Deering was a ghost ship and a mystery that's going to capture the public's attention for over 100 years. So the ship we're talking about, like I said, it's called the Carol A. Deering. It was made named after the shipmaker's son. The shipmaker was Gardner Deering. He started out in Bath, Maine with a partner. He then... By 1905, he's taken over. So we're in a different period from your Flying Dutchman. We're in the 20th century. Hmm. And so because we're in the 20th century, we have, you know, photographs and we have 
other things that help us to authenticate our story. By 1919 is when our Carol A. Deering was built. Steamships had really already taken over. So the Carol A. Deering is a schooner and it would have pretty much been like a beautiful oak dinosaur. And the- Oak dinosaur is our band name of the week. You know, I have a question, Eric. Yes. And we always talk about groups of animals. I really don't know what a group <laughs> of dinosaurs is. It is it a herd? <laughs> that seems so not fun, though. I mean, it probably no. is, but like there has to be like a like a roar of dinosaurs or something. I like that. Yeah. I, I really enjoy that. I think that it could be called a roar. We'll just go with that. Let's just say it. Okay. <laughs> it would be an armada so, of ships, though, right? An armada of ships and a roar of an armada of dinos. Mm-hmm. That's a great band name. Armada of dinos. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> Caroline Deering is the name of Deering of Gardner Deering's youngest son. He had named ships after all of his kids. He's eighty five by now. This ship is a big one. It's over two hundred and fifty feet long, and he's got a captain for it. So investors make their money back half of their money back in the first year or so and the ship's going the captain for this particular voyage that it's going to go on this time his name's william Merritt. Merritt's son is going to go with him as his first mate nepotism and in 1920 it leaves for virginia with a load of coal that's bound for brazil so it's going to rio well it ends up going to delaware and Merritt william rio at all not like Rio. No, the, the Delaware Rio. and Rio are very different places. Are you sure? I've heard it's the Rio of the East Coast. You heard it here first. Anyhow. Yeah. So anyhow, he goes to Delaware and Merritt's ill. There are some stories that Merritt, who was only in his 50s, like he's not as old as the next captain, maybe wasn't really ill because he says that he does not like the crew. He says they're unruly and he's not fond of them. So he leaves and his son leaves. And now they have to find a replacement captain. And so they do. By September 8th, they find W.B. Warmel. And Warmel is joined by his new first mate, Charles McClellan. Remember these names because there's going to be some tension. Now, I think it's of note that Merritt already didn't like this crew. And for the most part, from what we know, Wormel didn't feel much better about them. We have a list of the crew, so we know who the crew were. Most of them were actually from Denmark. So we have a largely Danish crew with a bosun who's from Finland. His name is Johan Fredriksen. He's going to be important because he's the only one out of these, and it tells us what they looked like, and it says that his complexion is ruddy and his hair is the same. So I would assume you could assume he's redheaded and his height is 5'6". So that's not particularly tall. There's another person who is about 5'9 or 5'10, and they have light hair, but it doesn't tell us if it's red or not. This is going to be important later, but we know all of the characters here. Okay. So they leave Delaware. They make it to Brazil in November. Uh, We don't really know of any physical issues that they had. But whilst on shore leave, it's reported that Wormel, he finds an old friend. You know, captains meet up at captain bars, I guess. And he tells his captain that he's having problems with the crew. And he doesn't particularly like them or his first mate. And 
Yeah, and he's feeling like he's dropped off his stuff. He just wants to make it home. He does like his engineer, who's also from you know, the States. Um, and his name's Herbert Bates and Herbert Bates, our engineer is going to come into play a little later too. When his friend asked about the possibility of mutiny, Wormel says, no, no. And I've got Bates. He's going to be on my side. We're going to be okay. We can just make it back. And, you know, he dropped off his crew. So he didn't feel like there would be any financial incentive to have the mutiny. Eventually on December 2nd, the Deering, it leaves Rio. And on its way back, they stop in Barbados, where they're probably fueled by Barbados rum. <laughs> hmm. But an incident occurs that may give us a clue to what happened. What happened next, Becca? Well, in Barbados, we're told from multiple sources, but especially I, I read one from Bland Simpson. It's called Ghost Ship of Diamond Shoals. And I got a lot of information for this section that witnesses heard an altercation between Wormel and his first mate, McClellan. And McClellan had a problem with the drink. And he was told by Wormel to get off the ship. And he was heard to yell back as he strode away, I'll kill you, old man. Hmm. So we have this going on now on shore. I'm assuming, you know, McClellan's partying like it's they're about to head back to a country where there's an 18th Amendment and they cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so prohibitions, the law of the land back when they go back. He was just drinking while he could, while it was free and easy. So we don't really know. But we run into another captain friend of Formel's. This man's name's Hugh Norton. Hugh Norton is of the ship, the Augustus W. Snow. And Norton reports that he talked to Wormel. Again, Wormel is complaining about his crew. He's telling him that this McClellan guy, my first mate's a lush. He is really harsh with our crew. And, you know, I think he needs to stop. They don't see eye to eye. Later, I'm assuming there's just like one big captain bar in Barbados <laughs> at this time. I don't really know because Norton is going to run into McClellan after he's talked to the captain and McClellan is doing the same thing. He's saying Warmel is just interfering with how I treat the crew. I can't do anything because he's always stopping me. He's a big jerk. Oh, by the way, I need to get the heck out of here. Can I work on your ship? And Norton's like, no. And so this really ticks off our first mate. McClellan is pretty unhappy. And he is overheard saying as he's getting away from Norton, I'll get the captain before we get back to Norfolk. I will. Got witnesses, more than one actually, hearing these threats against the captain from the first mate. Norton is friends with the captain and this drunken disorderly isn't going to fly. And so he calls the police, the local law enforcement are called and McClellan's actually arrested and hauled off to drunk jail, hmm. but not exactly sure why Wormel forgives him, bails him out and gets him back aboard the Caroline Deering. Well, good help is hard to find. Yeah, good helps are defined. You know, they had traveled together for months at this point. I'm not really sure what happens. No one is because they set sail on January the 9th for Hampton Roads, Virginia. And in January 1921, 
that's the last we know of them until they are spotted by the Cape Lookout lightship off of North Carolina. It's really strange because the ship, the Carol A. Deering, it hails the lightship. Hmm. It reports that it has faced a storm. It's lost both of their anchors. Could the owner of the ship be called? The odd thing is, is that the people that are seeing this, um, the lightship keeper, his name's Captain Thomas Jacobson, he says his radio's out and he can't call the Deering Company. But he says the man who is talking to him wasn't the captain. He actually didn't look like he was an officer. He was a tall, thin man with red hair. Mm. He spoke through a megaphone and he had an accent that seems kind of Scandinavian. So this is why I told us, you know, we have this list of people. So we have our suspects, do, do, do. And it seems like that possibly that ruddy haired man could have been Johan Fredriksen. Or so we have a ruddy haired man who's not very tall or a taller man, Niels Olsen, who his hair's brown. So I'm not sure which of these men it could have been. I think that... Standard people generally think it might have been Johann Fredrickson. Like maybe five six seems tall from five far away. Not quite sure. I'm really hung up on this whole idea that he didn't look like an officer. Like, what does that mean exactly? Like, uh, well, maybe that he was unkempt, where okay. an officer might not have been, is my assumption in this. Okay, let's go with that. But also what he noticed is that there were sailors milling about on areas of the deck where they wouldn't have been allowed where only the officers would have been allowed. Hmm. And so what's going on here? This struck him as strange. You have someone who's unkempt and doesn't seem to be the captain. You have regular sailors walking around in areas where they wouldn't be. Well, the next day, the crew of another ship said that they saw the Deering and it was going right toward Diamond Shoals, which is right in those graveyard of the Atlantic area off of Hatteras. On the 31st of January, one at the Coast Guard station, they're spotted again. Of course, you can't tell what this is. It's just a schooner that's coming from the early winter morning mist. And it was reported that there's this ship. It seems to be acting kind of strangely the conditions made it so people couldn't get out there until february 4th by the time the coast guard gets out there and they're able to get on it the ship's taking on water it's gotten quite battered they notice the lifeboats are gone the anchors are gone but remember we already heard they that said they were gone right that redhead and that non-officer looking guy the only living thing on this boat is some polydactyl cats. So legend has it that now the descendants of those polydactyl cats walk around Cape Hatteras today. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But what happened to the crew? Well, the, the, the equipment was damaged. They found that there was like the steering wheel, etc. They found a hammer, like a sledgehammer nearby, but they couldn't tell if the damage was from being stuck in the shoals or if someone had done it deliberately. The captain's quarters looked like someone had been sleeping in the guest quarters and there were shoes that were found in the closet that weren't necessarily the captain's. Hmm. And 
there was food on the table and all of the sailors' beds were made. Hmm. So what happened? I don't know. This but I bet that guy who didn't look like an officer who's putting his shoes in strange places could answer some questions. Perhaps. So this is pretty interesting because normally I think that the amount of what happened stories, uh, just because of the time it was found, events that had been going on, what we have are some really weird, well, they sound weird, I mean, given at the time, but there's some really strange ideas. Um, an investigation is right away undertaken the daughter of Wormel, she takes it all the way to Washington. I think there are like different departments, several departments of the U.S. government were looking. Hmm. One was led by Herbert Hoover, who was the Secretary of Commerce then. So this is well documented because it was being investigated over and over again. So Maybe. one of the theories was mutiny. Mutiny is always an option. Mutiny is always an option, but it got put on the back burner because on April 11th, 1921, a man by the name of Christopher Columbus Gray um, from North Carolina claimed that he found a message in a bottle that was floating in the waters of Buxton Beach. And he turns it over to the authorities. It says, Deering captured by oil burning boat, something like chaser, taking off everything, handcuffing crew. Crew hiding all over ship. No chance to make escape. Finder, please notify headquarters. Deering. Wow, that's a twist in the story. Well, it was. And, you know, the daughter of Ormel, she believed it. Um, they they said that it had been authenticated, that the bottle was only one that could have been found in Rio, that the paper was something that was from Rio, that they did handwriting analysis. And they decided that this handwriting analysis looked mo of each of the crews. They were trying to figure out who it was. And so they thought that this handwriting analysis probably most likely came from the engineer. So our trusted engineer, Herbert Bates. Well, as the investigators pressed on, Gray confesses that he wrote it <laughs> to an undercover operative. Dun, dun, dun. And he says that he was doing it because he really hoped that he could get a job at the lighthouse station and that this discovery might give him a leg up. Hmm. So that turned out to be nothing. <laughs> I know, like, forget applications. Resumes were very different back then. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm going to try it. Next time I want a job, I'm going to find a message in a bottle. Forge a message in a bottle, get a job. That's how that works. So that was a forgery. Another theory was that maybe bootleggers had come across them. Hmm. Because there were bootleggers coming in in those areas. Remember, we are during Prohibition. And so there was a thought that somehow they had witnessed bootleggers and were killed or kidnapped. That hmm. was another one. But probably another. I mean, who wouldn't think of pirates? Piracy had happened. Uh, but my very favorite is the Russian sympathizers <laughs> that the Russians took the ship. And the reason that this became a thing, you're laughing, because it was it was the Russians. Um, it, the reason this became a thing is that when the FBI was looking, when they were raiding the United Russian Workers Office in New York, they found papers that said that they were under orders to capture American ships and take them to Russia. The Bolsheviks. And so the U.S. Navy had to look for, you know, was looking for this and looking for ships, trying to figure out if it was Russians. It's obviously, communists are obviously behind this. So obviously another theory that people had is that it was a sea monster. 
I don't know what kind of sea monster would just eat the crew off and leave the ship. A communist sea monster. <laughs> it's a Russian sea monster working for the Bolsheviks. So, you know, not that. Could it have been, you know, maybe they came ac- across the f- flying Dutchman. Mm. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But most likely what people think now is that it was probably mutiny. So maybe this will cause someone to have an interest and try to figure out what happened. Dun, dun, dun. Do you think it's possible that they heard the ship coming that was to board them and they quickly lowered their lifeboats, you know, and got the heck out of there? Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, there's more theories than I gave you. And I'll go ahead and say there's that theory. And people have... Uh, there was another boat that was closely associated with them, the Hewitt, and it also disappeared. There were actually a, a group of ships that disappeared around the same time. Mm. And when it when they investigated, they eventually found so there was like an Italian ship, an, uh, it, again, again, a group of ships. And what they had found was that there was indeed a hurricane. But those two ships, the Hewitt and our Deering, had been moving away from it. Mm. So from looking at where they were, they wouldn't have been in that. Plus, again, we found the boats. They were witnessed, you know, by people, that redheaded man. Hmm. Um, so we know that didn't happen to them. Yep. He so, ain't looking like no officer. Right. But one thought was that perhaps they did mutiny and then they escaped the ship before exactly before they could get boarded gotcha and there's some investigation where they said that the people they found that that they have sort of investigated it all seemed like they possibly were the scandinavian crew (laughs) so or the like the danes the Finns, those people were the ones that they had some leads on is scandinavian crew are a synth pop cover band Oh my God, please. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Make it so. That's amazing. So that's what I got for you as far as my ghost ship. So that's a ghost ghost ship. Like (laughs) sure won't be making any more rounds. Well, no, um, they actually ended up stripping what they could from it. And this ship was almost new. Remember it was from, 1919 and this was only in 1921 but it was so damaged they stripped what they could and then no one exactly knows whether they exploded it or it just let nature take its course but it's still here in north carolina okay somewhere (laughs) somewhere well Um, here's a ship from my uh my i guess hometown why not we'll go with hometown this is a baltimore ship that boy boy is baltimore proud of its constellation And with good reason, perhaps. It was brought back home in October of 1966. So is this our ship full of ghosts? Yes, this is our ship full of ghosts. And Baltimore was trying a revitalization project. A lot of East Coast cities were in the 60s and 70s. In part of that effort, they thought they would bring a historic ship to Baltimore's harbor, and they would kind of build like a tourist and shopping district, you know, around this area. And this was a really neat thing to get because this is one of the oldest ships in the U.S. Navy. This was one of the first six frigates put into the service of the U.S. Navy. It was assembled in 1797. And here's kind of a cool part. It was put together in Fells Point, which is a neighborhood in Baltimore. Yeah. 
So even though this ship had literally served all over the world, it had seen action in the quasi-war against the French. It had been a part of both Barbary Wars in North Africa, as well as the War of 1812, which, of course, also happened, you know, I mean, Star-Spangled Banner, Baltimore Harbor, right? So this, this ship's got Baltimore all over it, and it's got something else all over it. You know what that is? Ghosts. <laughs> There's like a really gruesome story about an 11 year old ship surgeon who got stabbed by sailors. I don't Wait, really... did you say an 11 year old ship surgeon? Uh, well, surgeon's assistant, actually. Not surgeon. He was 11? <laughs> Duke, that Doogie Hauser. Freaking Doogie Hauser. That's a really <laughs> 19th century version of Doogie Hauser is much darker. No, um,. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that story though because it's upsetting. He was a he was a surgeon's assistant. He was a, a kid, and he met a bad end. There are also stories about harming themselves at sea or so forth. But the most infamous ghost aboard the Constellation is supposed to be a sailor by the name of Neil Harvey. He is actually the first ghost story I Eric were heard. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. My sister used to work on the Constellation in the 1970s. I think it was one of her first jobs. And she brought me kind of behind the scenes type of thing. And so here's little four or five year old Eric being brought down to the constellation. And, you know, I'm in this big giant wooden ship and the dude who's running the tour is telling me about a ghost and that there's a ghost named Harvey. And I thought Harvey was his first name because they just kept calling him Harvey. And they said that Harvey, you know, was seen walking the deck and Harvey can be heard late at night. You know, and so everything was kind of about this one ghost that in my mind as a child, I always thought of the ghost Harvey. I didn't realize that Harvey was his last name, Neil Harvey, uh, who was said to have served aboard the ship in 1799. And he was, it was during a battle during the quasi war against the French that he abandoned his post on one of the guns because the, he was just overwhelmed by the noise and by the battle and in fear, he fled his post. And as a result, you know, he ends Desertion. Up, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that, you know, especially in the middle of battle. That's literally deadly. And so he is said to be living out the guiltily the end of his days aboard the U.S. Constellation. All this is pretty impressive, you have to admit, except there's a problem. It's not the original? <laughs> it's the wrong ship. <laughs> <laughs> And this is the story gets so much weirder from this point. So yeah, it was the, <laughs> it was the wrong ship. They did give Baltimore a historic ship, but not for the reasons that they had been told. Turns out this wasn't a ship that was built in the 1790s. It was a ship that was built in the 1850s. So they got a sloop of war, not a frigate. It was the wrong kind of boat even. Um, and this boat, of course, had a completely different service record. Strangely enough, it's a historic ship in its own, in its own right, though. It may not be the, the original Constellation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's an 1850s sloop of war. Um, it is a wooden ship with sails. It's actually here's it's not the first ship built for the Navy. It's the last ship with sails that was commissioned by the USA Navy. So it's on the other book end of the ship history thing. Uh, it was a <laughs> sloop of war that was used to run down people who were bringing kidnapped people into the U.S. 
I just wonder how many poor, poor children like who were like, no, I know that that's a frigate because that's what I learned growing up. Well, yeah, probably. And not only that, but like the local society that was like donating money to like take care of this historic ship did mm-hmm. some remodeling on the ship. And so they actually added things to it to make it look a little more frigatey, apparently. Oh, dear. <laughs> that all got stripped off recently because someone who apparently knew their naval history just looked at the photo of the ship in the harbor and this is recently like in the late 20th century and was like that's not that kind of ship like that can't be possible but then the story gets weirder okay because okay so the constellation sloop of war and by the way the sloop of war we're talking about is also named the constellation so fair enough they're two ships with the same name little sleight of hand but okay yeah but but Neil Harvey, who lived in 1799, couldn't be aboard this no, new constellation. No, he's not haunting that ship. Right, yeah. So, so much for that ghost story, right? Well, it turns out, though, that there's another here, – ready? Here's another bit of razzle-dazzle for you. There's another Neil Harvey. There's <laughs> No, there's another twist of bait on this one. There's another sleight of hand. Turns out the new constellation was – actually passed off as the old constellation, not just to the city of Baltimore, but to the government of the United States. Oh, dear. So apparently, this is the theory, at least. The theory goes, according to a couple of historians, that the Navy didn't want to ask Congress for a brand new ship, but they could easily just use money to get a ship rebuilt. So they took, and this actually happened. We know what happened to the original constellation that was built in Fells Point. It ends up in Norfolk. Once again, here's Norfolk. And it ends up in the Norfolk shipyards, and it's being disassembled. But at the same time they're doing that, they're building another ship, the new constellation, just 900 yards away. They're building in the same shipyard the new constellation, and they're going to pass that off to Congress as the old constellation. Look look what you did with all that money to repair a ship. It looks just like a brand new ship. How about that? So they pulled an old switcheroo on the, on the U.S. government. So you kind of can't blame whoever passed that off to Baltimore. But they did do some digging in the records, and they found out what's going on. And so there are two different ships. It's obviously two different kinds of ships. The pictures you know, from history don't match up. But are you ready for the final twist of the story? There's ghosts on the ship. There are. And do you know why it actually could be Neil Harvey if he was a real person? Why? Because they use pieces of yes, the Yes, that's exactly right. Parts of the old constellation did make its way into the new constellation. So maybe his spirit traveled with the timbers. Shiver me timbers. Well, thank you folks for listening. Um, as usual, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and we hope to hear from you again in two weeks. Wado. Take care. Jackalope Carnival. You, not my boat, you boat?